You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So as a church, we have been going through a series looking at what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because the truth is, there's nothing more important in our life. Uh, You and I, we often walk around with questions. Why are we here? What is the Lord doing? What is God up to? And all of our life is actually this, this experience, this laboratory, where he's conforming us to become more like Jesus. And that plays out in all of our day-to-day life. And as a church, we're going through a series right now looking at just those markers, those, those realities for what it means to be a disciple. And the definitions we, definition we've been operating off of what it means to be a disciple is someone who's becoming more like Jesus in all of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Becoming more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That means all of your life. It's, it's expansive enough to, to, when you think about Monday morning, when you think about driving into work, when you think about taking your kids to school, when you think about taking a test if you're a student, whatever you're doing, Jesus is using all of those moments. There are no throwaway moments for followers of Jesus. He's using all of them to grow you in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, to which against there is no law. And all of that is not you just gritting your teeth, but rather you've been given the Spirit for that very work. And a big part of this, a big reality, is that a disciple, to be a disciple, someone who's following Jesus, we also must live in community. So that's what we're looking at today, is that a disciple lives inside of community. Um, I love Sundays. Sundays are one of my, uh, they're just probably my favorite day of the week. I love gathering here. I love when God's word is preached. I honestly love the singing and worship that we have at this church. We have some phenomenal worship leaders. I love all of it. I think the spirit operates in profound ways when God's word is opened up and people sit under the teaching of God's word. But I also know that while that's completely necessary, it's not totally sufficient to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, this is often a lot of information, and our transformation takes place in groups. Our transformation takes place inside of circles. This is rows. And when you think about it, all of your identity, a lot of your formation takes place in groups. Think about your family. Your family is not a place where you guys sit down and have a lot of like rows lined up and then there's a lecture, but rather there's a lot of relationship. There's a lot of face-to-face. There's a lot of connecting. And so Sunday is great, but it's not sufficient for what the Lord is doing in our life. We don't need just lectures, but we also need relationships. We need models. We need examples. And so this is why community is so important. Um, Some common views of discipleship kind of push us away from realizing just how central community is to being a follower of Jesus. A popular one, and some of these flow out of, we have to realize at a certain point, we're products of our time and place, of being Americans, of being Westerners. And sometimes we can dive deep into the values and beliefs and practices of our culture. And oftentimes our culture is highly individualistic, do your own thing. And so a common distortion of discipleship is that discipleship is primarily informational. That if you get all the right information, if you get all the right verses, if you have all the right theology, if you have all the right content, then somehow that's the magic key to making you more like Jesus. That really you're just a brain on a stick and and, and all your problems are really just information problems. They're cognitive problems. And if we just get you the right information, we'll finally fix you. But we all know that's not true, right? Because, I mean, even here in a month, we're going to start out the new year 
And there's lots of information out there that we'll all make new pledges and resolutions on of saying, okay, this is the year I get physically fit, or this is the year I get on a budget, or this is the year, whatever it is. And you can go to Barnes and Noble. Actually, I don't know if they exist anymore, but if there was one, you could go to one and you would see shelves and shelves and shelves of information. Information, the information's out there. But really, the problem is not lack of information. The problem is what you worship. Because you're not primarily just a thinking thing, you're a worshiping being. And what you love, what you worship, what your heart has affection and adoration for, that'll always pull you much more than what you know. In fact, if you think about it this way, James tells us that the demons have way better theology than anyone in this room. They know about God, they know more information about God than any of us ever would. But their information has no application. Their information does not lead to transformation. Their information is simply that, just information. And we are never transformed just by what we know. We're transformed and we grow by what we do and what we live out and what transforms our affections and our appetites. Another distortion of discipleship that we can often buy into, especially in church world, especially sometimes in in, in the South a little bit, especially in the Bible Belt, is a little bit of behavioralism, moralism, that really, as as long as I'm checking off the list, okay, I I did my quiet time, I prayed, I didn't do the things that I wasn't supposed to do, okay, I I didn't see those words, I didn't... Uh, see those movies. I, uh, you know, I did all the right things. I tithe even. I'm an all-star. You know, like I'm doing phenomenal. I'm doing all the right things. But this is the fallacy. This is the belief that I'm, I'm I'm acting better, so therefore I am better. But this is anti-gospel as well, because the very message of the gospel is, is that you can't get yourself better, that you can't act better, that rather you need a new heart and you need a new nature, because that all of us walk and we've already fallen short of the glory of God. We can never perform, we can never produce, we can never know our way into a relationship with Jesus, but rather we receive a relationship with Jesus. This is what Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter, thir- or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is what he says about the astounding reality when it comes to community, when it comes to the environment, the laboratory in which you and I are shaped. We have to hear these things. Christian, if you're a Christian, these things are true. They need to sink deep in your soul. Listen to this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So if you're Paul's audience, you got to think he's speaking to primarily a Jewish audience, your head just exploded, okay? It just, boom. I mean, he's, he's upsetting everything. Because if you're a Jew, you're listening to Paul speak, and you're familiar with this idea. If I want to commune with God, if I want to know God, if I want to experience the presence of God, if I want to get close to God, I need to go to a temple, and the temple's in Jerusalem. So I need to make a pilgrimage, and I need to put together a sacrifice, and I I need all these things that I have to do. And here comes Paul, and he completely changes things up. He says, actually, you are God's temple. If you want to meet God, if you want to know where God is, he's in you. Because here's the reality, Jesus comes and he dies the death that belonged to us, and when he resurrects, he sends his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit doesn't take up residence inside a temple or a place or a geographical region, but he takes up residence inside his people. God's Spirit dwells in us. You are the temple of God. That's what you are, Christian. And you have to, I mean, you can't lose sight of this too. The, the you there, where it says you are God's temple, this is not translated, this is not a singular you. This is the, this is the southern you, you. This is the plural. This is the y'all, okay? Y'all are God's temple. Y'all together. 
So yes, God saved you individually, but he saved you to a family. So he bought you, he saved you, he gave you a new life. And sometimes that's where we stop short in our understanding of the gospel. We think Jesus died for my sins, which is 100% true and accurate. But you've got to finish the gospel. Finish the gospel so that you would have a new family. So that he bought you to a new family. To give you a new life with brothers and sisters and a new heavenly father. He bought you for community. This is incredible news. The implications are astounding. I don't have time to unpack them all today. Otherwise, we'll be here at about three. But here, here's what I really want you to see. Christian, if, if you want to meet God, if you want to experience the presence of God, if you want to be closer to God, it'll be in community. Because those people around you, as ordinary as they might seem, as awkward as they might seem, they're actually living temples where the Holy Spirit dwells. God's Spirit has taken up residence in them. When you go to your home group, that's no ordinary activity. You're communing with others who the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in. This is profoundly true. This is something that needs to sink deep down into our bones. We're made for this. You're made for community. You're made to realize that you are God's temple. And us together, this is why often when we use phrases like, and I get it, it's shorthand, it's easy to say, but we say things like, I'm going to church. It's actually impossible to go to church. You are the church. You are the church. This is a building, and we're thankful for it, and we love it, but this building is not the church. Y'all are the church. Y'all are God's people. And how much does he love you? He loved you enough that you're bought by his blood. That's incredible. So that you would be a set-apart people. Now, this is great. Everyone's like, that sounds awesome, Ryan. Thank you for painting this really big, theological, great, awesome picture that's totally true. But then here's life, where this is hard, and this is difficult. And sometimes the ideal doesn't often live up to reality. And I don't want to just gleam over that as if I'm not aware that often community is really hard. And there are some things that make community really hard. In fact, we live in a culture right now that has become quite materially well-off, but is very relationally poor. We live in a society and a culture right now where even the former Surgeon General, he issued a, an art, a statement uh, a number of months back that said, I believe the biggest health crisis facing Americans right now is not obesity or cancer or heart disease, but rather it's persistent loneliness. People are more lonely and isolated than we've ever been in American history. The average man above the age of 40 has less than one meaningful friend. Less than one meaningful friend. And those that continue to isolate themselves and drift away from community and truly being known, and I'm not talking like people you can just get together and watch a sporting event with. I'm, I'm talking people that are going to get into the thick of it with you, that know you, that you're going to let in. And people that don't have those relationships, they are more prone to suffer from mental disorders and anxieties and stresses and pressures of life and even substance addiction and abuses. Robert Putnam, the Harvard professor and sociologist, um, looked at America, and in his book, Bowling Alone, he said this, the best predictor of happiness is the breadth and depth of one's relationships. Is the breadth and depth of one's relationships. And that's even just coming from the, the research out there, the, the, the non-Christian sociological conclusions coming to the very thing that the Bible tells us. Why? Because we're made in God's image. We're relational by our very nature. We can't get away from that very reality. Robert Putnam also says that 
life expectancy is seven years longer for those that have two or more meaningful relationships. Two or more meaningful relationships. So I almost think we should make our home groups model, join a group or die. So, it's <laughs> an idea, so might get some people involved. And so, but here's the, here's the thing, okay? I know that being known, and we all want it, we all like, yeah, I, I'm in, I want that, but it's hard. I mean, we bring so much junk to the table. We bring our sin, we bring our weirdness, we bring all of our backgrounds, we bring our shame, we bring our past, and this can be really hard. In fact, the biggest obstacle to why community is hard is sin, is sin. One of the most profound consequences of sin that we usually just kind of push right on uh, and we don't really acknowledge is sin really, one of its consequences is separation. You know, there's a, there's a loss of communion. There's a loss of community between us and God because of sin. Loss of communion. So you're starting there. And then also that separation even takes place between us and other. There's enmity. There's hostility. There's division. There's miscommunication. There's frustration. All of those things come into play in between us and others. Because what does sin do? Sin always separates. Sin always disintegrates what God wants to keep whole. He would love to keep our relationship with him whole, our relationship with our neighbors whole, our relationship with our, fans, our families whole. But what does sin do? Sin always separates. And we've all experienced this at one degree to the next. From your family, you've seen sin separate. From your marriage, maybe you've seen sin separate. Maybe a friendship or a business partner or a work situation or even a church, you've seen sin separate. That's what sin does. It disintegrates over time what God wants to integrate. And it makes life really hard. When sin rules the day and has its way inside of our relationships, it leads us often to become much more self-absorbed where we look in more internally on ourselves and it becomes harder to look out for the needs of others and to see what God might have us do in serving them. Also, what sin does is it isolates us and it separates us and it pushes us away from community and being known is it makes us self-deceived. It makes us self-deceived. You know, it's fascinating for me sometimes sitting down with people in a, just a conversation, a pastoral counseling conversation. They are tremendously just help themselves half the time by just saying out loud what they're thinking. You know, sometimes the, the very narrative, the script that's running around in your mind, when you're able to vocalize it to someone else, you're like, gosh, is, is that really what I'm thinking? Is that really what I'm believing? It's amazing when left to ourselves how prone to wonder and self-deceived we become. And if we're going to get really honest this morning, I think for a lot of us, the most powerful preacher that lives inside of our lives that we submit to and the story we live by is one of shame. And shame will always keep you from being known. Intimacy means into me you see. Into me, I'm going to let you see. And at Stonegate, we often use the language that we want to let people see the last 10%. A lot of us will tell about 90% of our story, but we're worried. Shame has cast a cloud, and it has put a lockbox on the last 10%. And it becomes the defining narrative, rather than the gospel, that you're free, that there's nothing you could do to lose your acceptance and love by God. But shame takes over, and it says, if people find out that last 10%, they'll walk away. They'll reject you. They'll judge you. They'll abandon you. That's what shame does, and it becomes a very powerful voice that pushes us away from community. Another thing, too, if we're just honest, is sometimes community's hard. Sometimes community is difficult. We look around at our lives, and we say, well, what I'm doing right now seems to be working. I've got enough friends. I've got enough relationships. And I think for us, we have to remember the example of Jesus, where he was willing to push away from just looking at his own needs, but rather seeing the needs of others. And so he was willing to carve out space to build relationships with new people, to engage new people. And here's the thing. 
the things that are the most meaningful in life, the things that, that, that bring us the most uh, significance and joy, they're always going to be hard. They're always going to be hard. So I don't doubt or want to minimize for a moment that there's some people in here that you've had some really hard things happen to you in community. And for you, when you think about community, that creates all sorts of anxiety and worry and fear. But here's what I'd say. This is where the gospel gets to, get to pour over you and realizing that Jesus is big enough for there to be a new story or a new adventure or it's worth trying again. You know, here's, at one point in your life, you had a bad meal, right? But did you eat again? You did. Why? Because eating's worth it. I bet you even had a bad haircut. But you know what? You went back and got another one eventually. Or what about this? Don't raise your hand. But if you're married, I bet you've had a bad day of marriage. But did you give up? No. How about parenting? Did you want to drop your kids off somewhere public at one point? Yes, but you didn't do it, even though it was a hard day. You want to know why? Because it's a mess worth making. It's a mess worth making. And community is that same way. It's a mess worth making. It's totally worth it when we look at our lives. And for us as Americans, as us as Westerners, we're going to have to push into the reality that we're not isolated, go it alone, lone rangers as much as we'd like to think we are. One author I enjoy, um, enjoy reading, he said this, Our lives are ponds, not thimbles. They have ripples to all around us. Our ripples influence others, and they influence us. Most of us wonder why we are not growing more or expressing, experiencing more of Jesus. And I would speculate that sometimes it's because we don't have much proximity or intensity in relationships with others. Here's the thing. To be a disciple of Jesus, the reason a disciple lives in community, because it's in community we're discipled. The reason a disciple lives in community, because it's in community we are discipled. Uh, we've been sharing with you a definition of what a disciple is, and I want to share with you this morning a definition of what it means to make disciples. And that definition of making disciples, it, 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 it's so biblical in the sense that it, it points us to the reality that we have to be in community for it to play out. And here's the definition. It says, gospel truths, gospel truths transferred through relationships. Gospel truths shared through relationships. So it's, it's things that are true and good and right and lovely and beautiful that we transfer through relationships, that we share through relationships. You know, it's really easy to read the Gospels, and, to, uh, and we all should love the theology. I love the theology of Jesus. But along with the theology of Jesus, we need to pay attention to the methodology of Jesus. The theology of Jesus and also his methods. And if you look at the methods of Jesus, they're a little foreign. They're a little strange at first blush. Because if you and I were in charge of starting a global movement, if you and I were saying, I need to get this message out to the ends of the earth, we would have started differently. We would have put together a business plan. We would have come out with a marketing campaign. We would have got social media going. We would have written a best-selling book. We would have put together a document. We would have done all sorts of things. But what does Jesus do? Jesus goes for a walk. Starts out John 1, goes for a walk, and he just starts calling people into community. He says, hey, Andrew follow me. Hey, Simon, come along with me. Hey, Peter, quit your job and get over here. We're going to go for a, an adventure. He brings people into community, and what does he do once he brings them into community? He begins to transfer truths about who he is through relationships that he builds with them, and Jesus continues that example for three years. In three years, he never really reaches massive audience. He doesn't travel far, but rather he concentrates intensely upon three guys and 12 guys. He banks his entire mission on three and twelve. Twelve apostles and three in an inner circle. Isn't that wild? Jesus starts an entire 
ministry, a global movement by sharing gospel truths through personal relationships. And here's the truth, friends. All of us can do this. All of us have relationships around us, and we, we need others around us to speak the truth in love to us. You know, uh, community and uh, this, this, this type of disciple-making is, is a lot like parenting. Um, in parenting, there's a new birth, right? Like the baby comes along, here's a new birth, a new creation in Christ, just like you. You were a new birth. You were a new creation in Christ. And along with that new life, comes lots of imitation. You know, I've had young kids, and it's always fun to watch your young kids. They're watching you, for better or for worse. I think some days we wish that wasn't true, but they're watching you. They're mimicking you. They're following as you do. They're listening to your instruction. There's lots of imitation. You know what else there is with kids? There's lots of proximity. They're always there. They're, they're, they're around. They're watching. They're near. And there's lots of, there's, there's time. I mean, there's 18 years. This is a big commitment. This is a big deal. And over that 18 years, you're transferring all sorts of truths into their precious little hearts. You're giving them instruction about life and about career and about relationship and about future and about wisdom and about God. But how are you transferring those truths? Why are those truths landing in a meaningful way? Because you have a relationship. And the deeper the relationship, the heavier the truth can be. This is what Jesus says, and I love it, in John 13, verses 34 through 35. And I want to look at this really quick. This is what Jesus says. And he's at his last supper with his disciples, and he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus is saying, okay, there's a lot of rules in the Old Testament. I know there's 600 commands, but let's just put it all together, okay? This is the one command, and you know you're God because you can issue commands. Normal people cannot issue commands, okay? So Jesus is saying, I'm God. I can can give you a command, and the new command is that you love one another. He's referring to the type of community, the way they'll relate to one another, the way that they'll serve one another. They'll put the needs of each other before the needs of themselves. And that one another phrase, we see it pop up time and time again throughout the rest of the New Testament. There's over 57 one another's throughout the New Testament that tell us and give us more definition and texture of what's meant by this. That you would forgive one another, that you would encourage one another, that you would exhort one another. And all of these are highly relational. A disciple, a follower of Jesus who's not in community, is, it's like a bird that doesn't fly. It's just weird. And that's what an ostrich is. It's weird. So that's what, a, I mean, you need to be in, in community. He's saying you've got to love one another. And I love what he says in 35. Don't miss this, church. This is why community, it's a non-negotiable absolute. He says, by this, all people. And who are all people? All people are, are non-Christian. That's the watching world around us. That's not the church. That's all people. will know that you are my disciples. If you have loved one another, you can't miss that. Jesus is saying that the watching world, the, the, the non-Christian world around us, has a right to decide whether you and I are the real deal. Isn't that wild? He's saying this love thing, this loving one another, this, this community type thing is such a big deal that the rest of the world either gets, gets to look at you and I and say that's legitimate or it's not. They get to call balls and strikes on us, the church. He says, if, that if, that's conditional, if you love one another. Francis Schaeffer, um, one of the most famous apologists and thinkers, Christian thinkers of the 20th century, this guy debated almost every well-known academic from the 20th century and wrote countless articles and books on apologetics. I love where he landed. This is what he said. He said, our relationship with each other is the criterion 
the world will use to judge whether our message is faithful. Christian community is the final apologetic. So you and I, we can have the most airtight arguments for the existence of God. We can be familiar with the teleological argument and the Kalam cosmological argument. And we can research the historicity of Jesus Christ. And we can look at, you know, Pontius Pilate and the, the context of Josephus and all the writings. And we can have all that together. But if we don't love one another, it doesn't matter. It doesn't resonate. The watching world wants to know if this is real. Do we love one another? Are we willing to lay our lives down and to build relationships with one another that allow us to transform and disciple each other and to be seen as a city on a hill to the watching world around us? An illustration of this that I often think about is uh, a picture will come up here on the screen of a bridge. I often think about if the, a bridge was, was the, the, uh, the relationship we use to transfer over those gospel truths into the life of people. The stronger the, rela the, the bridge, the stronger the relationship, the heavier the truth can be into the life of someone else. So if you see this bridge, it looks a little bit like the Indiana Jones Bridge. It's like, maybe I'll cross that, maybe I won't. You know, like, I guess if I have to, an emergency, I can go across that. But you know, you're probably not going to drive like a tank or a semi over that, right? You wouldn't drive something super weighty and heavy over that bridge. You would want a bridge that had a lot more stability and strength to it. You know, I was thinking, like, say I was at Starbucks and there was a guy in front of me and he had a piece of lint on his shirt. I'd be happy to say, hey, by the way, buddy, I uh, just want you to know there's a piece of lint on your shirt. Not a big deal. That's a pretty light truth, isn't it? He's going to, oh, thanks. But what if I tap him on the shoulder and I go, hey, man, by the way, I've been watching you for the last week and it turns out you're really greedy and selfish. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. What's his response going to be? What's that guy going to say? Who are you? Who are you? And he's right. Who am I? I don't, and what's to say? I don't know you. And he's right. He doesn't know me. And what if I'm actually right? What if the guy is greedy and selfish? But I don't have the relationship. The relationship, the love one another doesn't exist, so he can't receive the truth. No matter how true the truth is, he can't receive it because the relationship is not strong enough. If you're going to deliver heavy truths, life-transforming truths in the deepest recesses and parts of people's souls, you're going to need strong relationships to do so. Uh, look at this second picture, and all of us kind of know this image. This is the Golden Gate Bridge. But if you're looking at that, that bridge feels strong enough. That type of relationship allows you to deliver heavy payloads of gospel truths into the deepest parts of people's lives, the places where often they don't want to let out, they don't want to be known, or they want to hide. And they're only going to open up for those that have super significant and strong relationships with them. Loving relationships are the bridge to communicate the gospel. This is true. I mean, Jesus showed us this in his methodology along with his theology. These strong bridges, though, they're built. They're built when we're willing to push past the superficiality. So all of us walking in here this moment, we want to have those kind of relationships. We want to have those kind of meaningful relationships where people can speak into our lives and we can receive it and we want to do that with others. But here's, here's the thing. If you're around Stonegate for any uh, length of time, we often talk about this and this, this general relationship pathway that I want to show you up on the screen. And often what starts out when you form a relationship with someone is you're just going to see the things that look great. Hey, that person seems interesting. That person's got a funny personality. That person seems smart. Maybe I'll talk to them. And maybe you begin actually talking to one another, and there seems to be some commonality. We both like football. We both like Hobby Lobby. We both like, who knows, spreadsheets, whatever we like. We like it together. Um, but, you know, we got a few things in common. So now they're cool. This is great. 
And you know what? Then it begins to intensify. Maybe we join a club together. We're in home group together. Our home group's having fun. Our home group's going out on some guys' nights and some gals' nights. And everyone's laughing. And, and there's all sorts of joys. And we're doing ugly sweater parties. And it's fantastic. This is awesome hill. These are finally the people I've been looking for. Why, where have they been all my life? You know, they're all great. They're all perfect. None of them have any sin. <gasps> oh, wait. <laughs> they do. And now we're in Cruddy Valley. This is where people begin to step on your toes. And that person who was on awesome hill with you, you find out that they're not Jesus. You find out that they, they have a story and a past, and they betray you, and they let you down, and they eventually frustrate you. Maybe there's a miscommunication, there's a betrayal, there's a separation in the relationship, there's a tension point, there's a frustration. And when you're in Cruddy Valley, this is really, though, when you're finally beginning to push through into an actual meaningful relationship. Um, I think about when I got married, um, you know, Crystal and I, we went through the, the premarital counseling and uh, read the books, did all the conversation, and at the end, they're like, hey, just so you guys know, you got some rose-colored glasses about marriage, and it's probably going to be a little hard for you, and we're like, Psh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. We'll be great. We don't fight. Life's awesome. You know, thanks for the, the time and the advice, and uh, lo and behold, six months later, we were in Cruddy Valley. It was like, oh, that's who you are. Oh, that's who I am, and you know what the real problem was? Is it wasn't her. It was actually seeing things about me that I never was able to see. It was like having a giant magnifying glass put onto my soul and, you know, seeing that I wasn't as loving or patient or kind or self-control or gentle as I thought I was. All of those things got exposed, and here we were in Cruddy Valley, and you've got that moment. What do you do? Because now that's the real you, and this is the real me. And as I said before, what does sin want to do when you're in Cruddy Valley? It wants to separate. It wants to destroy. It wants to ruin. And this is where for us as Christians, and if you're not a Christian, you really need to become one, okay? This is why, too, because there's this awesome thing called grace. And because of grace, our relationship didn't have to die because Jesus already died. Because Jesus took on that death, we were able to be united. And our relationship didn't have to die, and we didn't have to kill each other. But rather, Jesus had already died. And out of Cruddy Valley finally comes that place of fam family mountain, which is like, I see the real you, and you see the real me, and I'm accepted. That last 10% gets put on the table. And I'll tell you, there is no greater moment of God's overwhelming flood of grace upon the human soul then when that last 10% gets found out and you experience love and you experience acceptance and you experience a hug, your worst fears kind of disappear that you would be rejected or abandoned or forgotten, but rather you're loved. And that's what we all want. That's what we all crave. And friends, this is a huge challenge for us as a church. This is a huge challenge, especially in America. You want to know why? Because we live in a culture of options. And so the very natural response often to Cruddy Valley is to avoid, is to ignore, is to excuse, is to flee. What do we do when we have conflict? Well, we live in America, the land where we're very transient and there's lots of opportunities. So you know what? You don't like your boss? Well, he's a jerk. I'm just going to go get another job. You don't like your neighbor? Well, that's great. I'll just move houses. You know what? I don't like my church. That's fine. There's eight others in the neighborhood. You know what we do? Every time we do that, we actually become a prisoner to freedom because we miss out on going through Cruddy Valley. And it's only through Cruddy Valley that we get to Family Mountain, that we're truly fully known. It's not, it's not accidental that Jesus frequently speaks that you will have to die to yourself in order to find your life. 
Because inside of every relationship is a thousand deaths. But what, what happens for the Christian inside death? There's always resurrection. And so if you're in Christ, you can walk through Cruddy Valley, you can walk through a thousand relational deaths knowing there's resurrection on the other side. That is transformative. That is the good news of the gospel. And that's why you and I, Christian, we can be in community together. I want to end with just looking at one or two practical things from Ecclesiastes, which we read earlier, and I'll be, I'll be brief with these. Uh, but let me read it again. It'll come up on the screen for your convenience behind me. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. You know, no matter how strong we think we are, no matter how capable we think we are, no matter how much we think we've secured our life through our resources and we can make it through life on our own, there will eventually come a moment where you'll fall. Sickness will come along your way. Tragedy will come along your way. Whatever it is, eventually you will fall. And when you fall, when you have that moment of suffering, when you have that moment of strife, in those moments when we are on our, lo- on our own, when we're isolated, that, that suffering actually enhances and it's exponentially magnified. But when we have community, that same suffering is, is met with a balm of encouragement and love and support. So those who have community, their seasons of suffering and sorrow are shortened by the support and love of others. And those who don't, those who are isolated, their seasons of suffering and brokenness tend to be extended and often be open-ended and ongoing. And here's the other thing. When you think about Job, Job had like this crazy life, right? If you haven't read the book of Job, you should do that. It's a wild story. But here's Job. His whole entire life is wrecked. It's turned upside down. And inside of his suffering, Job is left answering these huge questions of, is God good? Is God loving? Does God care? And he's isolated and all alone. And I think when a lot of us, when we go through suffering, when we're all alone and we don't have community around us who knows us, who we've let into the last 10%, our suffering can lead us to think wrong things about God and his character and also what he's doing in our life. Job, for example, here here was Job's support system in his moment of suffering. His wife basically comes up to him and says, you know what, I really think you should just curse God and die. Well, thanks, (laughs) that's That's awesome. But that was his support system. In that moment of suffering, Job basically is isolated. He's all alone. So let me ask you this. Practically speaking, who in your life can push through the I'm fine? Who in your life can push through the I'm good, I'm all right, I've got it all together? Who have you allowed? Who have you asked? Who have you demanded that they'll come on in? Because once again, our independence and our opportunity and our individualism makes anonymity easier than ever, but it also makes our isolation worse than ever. Solomon finishes off in verse 11. He says this, also if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but if one can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Have you ever felt overpowered? Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Maybe it took everything you could muster to come to church today and you feel overwhelmed. Life feels overwhelming. Marriage feels overwhelming. Parenting feels overwhelming. The future feels overwhelming. And I'll tell you, friends, the only thing worse than suffering, the only thing worse than being overwhelmed, is being overwhelmed alone. Is being overwhelmed alone. 
at some point, everyone in here will need some somebodies. At some point, we'll all need some somebodies. And here's why. Wouldn't it be amazing if there were these places and spaces where those who see things about me could actually say them to me in a way that I would receive them and I would be, I would be blessed and I would grow and I would thrive. You know, if, if you're single in here, I always tell single people, there are no such thing, at, thing as married problems. There's just single people who get married and bring their problems in. And what's fascinating is often in those moments, you know, they're, they're around other married people and you have that moment once again where you're like, gosh, I can see that train wreck coming, or I can see how that's not going to work out well, or I can see how that's going to be difficult. But we don't have a circle. We don't have a group. We don't have a community that can actually just say those things, that can help them avoid that overwhelming moment, that sorrow, that suffering. And married people, you know, I'll say this, every marriage that doesn't have support will eventually end up on life support. If you're trying to do this marriage thing without support, you're going to end up on life support. Because there's things about your marriage that if you'll just submit it to community, that if you'll live it in community, they'll see things that will save you all sorts of suffering and sorrow. I've had friends just bless Crystal and I over the years, all constantly, frequently mention to us like, hey, we see this. This might be something you want to think about. This might be something you want to consider. And what a blessing that was. Rather than just going down this road self-deceived and naive. Everybody at some point is going to need some somebodies. And this is the thing, church, this, this is the good news. And if you're not a Christian, today's the day for you to become a Christian. Because once again, Jesus didn't just die to forgive your sins, although he did that. And by doing that, taking the wrath of God off of you, he also saved you to a family, to a new family. So he's brought community back first between him and you. You have union. You have community with the God of the universe. And here, think about it. We're about to step into the season of Christmas and Advent where we, we, we celebrate and we stand in a sense of awe and wonder that the God of the universe would look at broken, stiff-fisted, stiff-necked people and walk toward us. And we had nothing to offer him. There's nothing impressive on our LinkedIn profile that he really needed to network with us for. But rather, anyways, he chooses to come over and he enters into our mess and he's willing to get down into it with us. And he knows the last 10% before we even know it and better than we know it ourselves. And he still says, you're loved. And how do you know you're loved? How do you know that God loves you? How can I say that so boldly and just proclaim it? Because there's outstretched hands where God hangs on a tree so that you would have new life. So his blood was shed so your blood doesn't have to be. So that the wrath of God is removed from you. It's placed on Jesus. He takes all of God's wrath and you get all of Jesus' righteousness. And along with Jesus' righteousness, you get his family. You get adopted into a family. That is the gospel, church. That's the good news. And the watching world wants to know, do we really believe that? And if we do, we'll love one another. Would you pray with me? God, there are people in this room right now who are feeling your Holy Spirit convict and encourage them to take next steps. For some in this room, that might be the next step of following you, surrendering their sin, and choosing to put their trust and their hope in you and to step into community with you 
and to know they're loved. And if they are, we have folks at our prayer tables that would love to pray with them and to talk with them. And God, there's others of us in this room that we're, we're, we love you and we're followers of you, but we've been sitting on the sidelines. Maybe we've been wrestling with a past objection or situation or even fear when we think about being known or community. Maybe we just haven't gotten around to it. And God, may they take the step today to say, what would it look like for me to get into a community, get into a home group, begin serving on a team where other people will get to know me at church? Because God, you're banking all of this, this whole thing that we, your people, your church, your temple, would love one another. Because you first loved us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.